0: THE PREAMBLE PART Two OF LAWS BY PLATO TRANSLATED BY BENJAMIN JOWETT THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN AND NOW WE WILL RESUME THE ORIGINAL ARGUMENT WHICH MAY BE SUMMED UP AS FOLLOWS A CONVIVIAL MEETING IS APT TO GROW TUMULTUOUS AS THE DRINKING PROCEEDS EVERY MAN BECOMES LIGHT-HEADED AND FANCIES THAT HE CAN RULE THE WHOLE WORLD DOUBTLESS and did we not say that the souls of the drinkers when subdued by wine are made softer and more malleable at the hand of the legislator the docility of childhood returns to them at times however they become too valiant and disorderly drinking out of their turn and interrupting one another and the business of the legislator is to infuse into them that divine fear which we call shame in opposition to this disorderly boldness. But in order to discipline them, there must be guardians of the law of drinking and sober generals who shall take charge of the private soldiers. They are as necessary in drinking as in fighting, and he who disobeys these Dionysiac commanders will be equally disgraced. Very good. If a drinking festival were well-regulated, men would go away, not as they now do greater enemies, but better friends. Of the greatest gift of Dionysus I hardly like to speak, lest I should be misunderstood. What is that? According to tradition, Dionysus was driven mad by his stepmother, Harry, and in order to revenge himself he inspired mankind with Bacchic madness but these are stories which I would rather not repeat. However, I do acknowledge that all men are born in an imperfect state, and are at first restless, irrational creatures. This, as you will remember, has been already said by us, I remember, and that Apollo and the Muses and Dionysus gave us harmony and rhythm, very true." The other story implies that wine was given to punish us and make us mad, but we contend that wine is a balm and a cure, a spring of modesty in the soul and of health and strength in the body. Again, the work of the chorus is co-extensive with the work of education. Rhythm and melody answer to the voice and the motions of the body, correspond to all three, and the sound enters in and educates the soul in virtue. Yes, yes and the movement which, when pursued as an amusement, is termed dancing, when studied with a view to the improvement of the body, becomes gymnastic. Shall we now proceed to speak of this? What Cretan or Lacedaemonian would approve of your omitting gymnastic? Your question implies assent, and you will easily understand a subject which is familiar to you. Gymnastic is based on the natural tendency of every animal to rapid motion, and man adds a sense of rhythm, which is awakened by music. Music and dancing together form the choral art. But before proceeding, I must add a crowning word about drinking. Like other pleasures, it has a lawful use. But if a state or an individual is inclined to drink at will, I cannot allow them. I would go further than Crete or Lacedaemon, and have the law of the Carthaginians, that no slave of either sex should drink wine at all, and no soldier while he is on a campaign, and no magistrate or officer while he is on duty, and that no one should drink by daylight or on a bridal night, and there are so many other occasions on which wine ought to be prohibited, that there will not be many vines grown or vineyards required in the state. Book three. If a man wants to know the origin of states and societies, he should behold them from the point of view of time. Thousands of cities have come into being and have passed away again in infinite ages, every one of them having had endless forms of government. And if we can ascertain the cause of these changes in states, that will probably explain their origin. What do you think of ancient traditions about deluges and destructions of mankind, and the preservation of a remnant? Everyone believes in them. Then let us suppose the world to have been destroyed by a deluge. The survivors would be hill shepherds, small sparks of the human race, dwelling in isolation and unacquainted with the arts and vices of civilization. We may further suppose that the cities on the plain and on the coast have been swept away, and that all inventions and every sort of knowledge have perished. Why, if all things were as they now are, nothing would have ever been invented. All our famous discoveries have been made within the last thousand years, and many of them are but of yesterday. Yes, Cleinias, and you must not forget Epimenides, who was really of yesterday. He practiced the lesson of moderation and abstinence, which Hesiod only preached. True. After the great destruction, we may imagine that the earth was a desert, in which there were a herd or two of oxen and a few goats hardly enough to support those who tended them while of politics and governments the survivors would know nothing and out of this state of things have arisen arts and laws and a great deal of virtue and a great deal of vice little by little the world has come to be what it is At first the few inhabitants would have had a natural fear of descending into the plains, although they would want to have intercourse with one another, they would have a difficulty in getting about, having lost the arts and having no means of extracting metals from the earth or of felling timber, for even if they had saved any tools these would soon have been worn out and they could get no more until the art of metallurgy had been again revived faction and war would be extinguished among them for being solitary they would incline to be friendly and having abundance of pasture and plenty of milk and flesh they would have nothing to quarrel about we may assume that they had also dwellings clothes pottery for the weaving and plastic arts do not require the use of metals in those days they were neither poor nor rich and there was no insolence or injustice among them for they were of noble natures and lived up to their principles and believed what they were told knowing nothing of land or naval warfare or of legal practices or party conflicts they were simpler and more temperate and also more just than the men of our day very true i am showing whence the need of lawgivers arises for in primitive ages they neither had nor wanted them men lived according to the customs of their fathers in a simple manner under a patriarchal government such as still exists both among hellenes and barbarians and is described in homer as prevailing among the cyclops they have no laws, and they dwell in rocks or on the tops of mountains, and every one is the judge of his wife and children, and they do not trouble themselves about one another. That is a charming poet of yours, though I know little of him, for in Crete foreign poets are not much read. But he is well known in Sparta, though he describes Ionian rather than Dorian manners, and he seems to take your view of primitive society. May we not suppose that government arose out of the union of single families who survived the destruction, and were under the rule of patriarchs because they had originally descended from a single father and mother? That is very probable. As time went on, men increased in number until the ground, living in a common habitation which they protected by walls against wild beasts, but the several families retained the laws and customs which they separately received from their first parents. They would naturally like their own laws better than any others, and would be already formed by them when they met in a common society. Thus legislation imperceptibly began among them, for in the next stage the associated families would appoint plenty potentiaries who would select and present to the chiefs those of all their laws which they thought best the chiefs in turn would make a further selection and would thus become the lawgivers of the state which they would form into an aristocracy or a monarchy probably in the third stage various other forms of government would arise this state of society is described by homer in speaking of the foundation of dardania which he says was built at the foot of many fountained ida for ilium the city of the plain as yet was not here as also in the account of the cyclops the poet by some divine inspiration has attained truth but to proceed with our tale ilium was built in a wide plain on a low hill which was surrounded by streams descending from ida this shows that many ages must have passed for the men who remembered the deluge would never have placed their city at the mercy of the waters When mankind began to multiply, many other cities were built in similar situations. These cities carried on a ten-year's war against Troy, by sea as well as land, for men were ceasing to be afraid of the sea, and in the meantime, while the chiefs of the army were at Troy, their homes fell into confusion. The youth revolted and refused to receive their own fathers, Deaths, murders, exiles ensued under the new name of Dorians, which they received from their chief Dorius. The exiles returned. The rest of the story is part of the history of Sparta. Thus, after digressing from the subject of laws into music and drinking, we return to the settlement of Sparta, which in laws and institutions is the sister of Crete, We have seen the rise of a first, second, and third state during the lapse of ages, and now we arrive at a fourth state, and out of the comparison of all four, we propose to gather the nature of laws and governments, and the changes which may be desirable in them. If, replies the Spartan, our new discussion is likely to be as good as the last, I would think the longest day too short for such an employment." Let us imagine the time when Lacedaemon and Argos and Messini were all subject, Megillus, to your ancestors. Afterwards, they distributed the army into three portions and made three cities, Argos, Messini, Lacedaemon. Yes, Timenus was the king of Argos, Chrysanthes of Messini, Proclus, and Eurysthenes ruled at Lacedaemon. Just so and they all swore to assist any one of their number whose kingdom was subverted yes but did we not say that kingdoms or governments can only be subverted by themselves that is true Yes, and the truth is now proved by facts. There were certain conditions upon which the three kingdoms were to assist one another. The government was to be mild and the people obedient and the kings and people were to unite in assisting either of the two others when they were wronged. This latter condition was a great security, clearly. Such a provision is in opposition to the common notion that the lawgiver should make only such laws as the people like. But we say that he should rather be like a physician prepared to effect a cure, even at the cost of considerable suffering. Very true. The early lawgivers had another great advantage. They were saved from the reproach which attends a division of land and the abolition of debts. No one could quarrel with the Dorians for dividing the territory, and they had no debts of long standing. They had not then what was the reason why their legislation signally failed for there were three kingdoms two of them quickly lost their original constitution that is a question which we cannot refuse to answer if we mean to proceed with our old man's game of inquiring into laws and institutions and the dorian institutions are more worthy of consideration than any other having been evidently intended to be a protection not only to the peloponnese but to all the hellenes against the barbarians for the capture of troy by the achaeans had given great offence to the assyrians of whose empire it then formed part and they were likely to retaliate accordingly the royal heraclid brothers devised their military constitution which was organized on a far better plan than the old trojan expedition and the dorians themselves were far superior to the achaeans who had taken part in that expedition and had been conquered by them Such a scheme undertaken by men who had shared with one another toils and dangers, sanctioned by the Delphian oracle under the guidance of the Heraclidae, seemed to have a promise of permanence. Naturally. Yet this has not proved to be the case. Instead of the three being one, they have always been at war. Had they been united in accordance with the original intention, they would have been invincible. And what caused their ruin? Did you ever observe that there are beautiful things of which men often say, what wonders they would have effected if rightly used? And yet, after all, this may be a mistake. And so I say of the Heraclidae, and their expedition, which I may perhaps have been justified in admiring, but which nevertheless suggests to me the general reflection— What wonders might not strength and military resources have accomplished if the possessor had only known how to use them? For consider, if the generals of the army had only known how to arrange their forces, might they not have given their subjects everlasting freedom and the power of doing what they would in all the world? Very true. Suppose a person, to express his admiration of wealth or rank, Does he not do so under the idea that by the help of these he can attain his desires? All men wish to obtain the control of all things, and they are always praying for what they desire. Certainly. And we ask for our friends what they ask for themselves. Yes. Dear is the son to the father, and yet the son, if he is young and foolish, will often pray to obtain what the father will pray that he may not obtain. True. And when the father in the heat of youth or the dotage of age makes some rash prayer, the son, like Hippolytus, may have reason to pray that the word of his father may be ineffectual. You mean that a man should pray to have right desires before he prays that his desires may be fulfilled, and that wisdom should be the first object of our prayers? Yes, yes. And you will remember my saying that wisdom should be the principal aim of the legislator. But you said that defense and war came first. And I replied that there were four virtues, whereas you acknowledged one only, courage, and not wisdom, which is the guide of all the rest. And I repeat, in jest, if you like, but I am willing that you should receive my words in earnest, that the prayer of a fool is full of danger. I will prove to you, if you will allow me, that the ruin of those states was not caused by cowardice or ignorance in war, but by ignorance of human affairs. Pray proceed, our attention will show better than compliments that we prize your words. I maintain that ignorance is and always has been the ruin of states, wherefore the legislator should seek to banish it from the state, and the greatest ignorance is the love of what is known to be evil, and the hatred of what is known to be good. This is the last and greatest conflict of pleasure and reason in the soul. I say the greatest because affecting the greater part of the soul, for the passions are in the individual what the people are in a state, and when they become opposed to reason or law and instruction no longer avails, That is the last and greatest ignorance of states and men. I agree. Let this then be our first principle, that the citizen who does not know how to choose between good and evil must not have authority, although he possess great mental gifts and many accomplishments, for he is really a fool. On the other hand, he who has this knowledge may be unable either to read or swim, Nevertheless, he shall be counted wise and permitted to rule. For how can there be wisdom where there is no harmony? The wise man is the Savior, and he who is devoid of wisdom is the destroyer of states and households. There are rulers and there are subjects in states, and the first claim to rule is that of parents to rule over their children, the second that of the noble to rule over the ignoble, Thirdly, the elder must govern the younger. In the fourth place, the slave must obey his master. Fifthly, there is the power of the stronger, which the poet Pindar declares to be according to nature. Sixthly, there is the rule of the wiser, which is also according to nature, as I must inform Pindar, if he does not know, and is the rule of law over obedient subjects. Most true and there is a seventh kind of rule which the gods love in this the ruler is elected by lot then now we playfully say to him who fancies that it is easy to make laws you see legislator the many and inconsistent claims to authority here is a spring of troubles which you must stay and first of all you must help us to consider how the kings of argos and messini in olden days destroyed their famous empire did they forget the saying of hesiod that the half is better than the whole And do we suppose that the ignorance of this truth is less fatal to kings than to peoples? Probably the evil is increased by their way of life. The kings of those days transgressed the laws and violated their oaths. Their deeds were not in harmony with their words and their folly, which seemed to them wisdom was the ruin of the state. And how could the legislator have prevented this evil? The remedy is easy to see now, but was not easy to foresee at the time. What is the remedy? The institutions of Sparta may teach you, Megillus, wherever there is excess, whether the vessel has too large a sail, or the body too much food, or the mind too much power, there destruction is certain. And similarly, a man who possesses arbitrary power is soon corrupted and grows hateful to his dearest friends, In order to guard against this evil, the God who watched over Sparta gave you two kings instead of one, that they might balance one another, and further to lower the pulse of your body politic. Some human wisdom mingled with divine power tempered the strength and self-sufficiency of youth with the moderation of age in the institution of your senate a third saviour bridled your rising and swelling power by ephors whom he assimilated to officers elected by lot and thus the kingly power was preserved and became the preserver of all the rest had the constitution been arranged by the original legislators not even the portion of aristodemus would have been saved for they had no political experience, and imagined that a youthful spirit invested with power could be restrained by oaths. Now that God has instructed us in the arts of legislation, there is no merit in seeing all this, or in learning wisdom after the event. But if the coming danger could have been foreseen, and the union preserved, then no Persian or other enemy would have dared to attack Hellas." and indeed there was not so much credit to us in defeating the enemy as discredit in our disloyalty to one another for of the three cities one only fought on behalf of hellas and of the two others argos refused her aid and messenia was actually at war with sparta and if the lacedaemonians and athenians had not united the hellenes would have been absorbed in the persian empire and dispersed among the barbarians We make these reflections upon past and present legislators because we desire to find out what other course could have been followed. We were saying just now that a state can only be free and wise and harmonious when there is a balance of powers. There are many words by which we express the aims of the legislator. Temperance, wisdom, friendship. But we need not be disturbed by the variety of expression these words have all the same meaning. I should like to know at what, in your opinion, the legislator should aim. Hear me then. There are two mother forms of states, one monarchy and the other democracy. The Persians have the first in the highest form, and the Athenians the second, and no government can be well administered which does not include both. There was a time when both the Persians and Athenians had more the character of a constitutional state than they now have. In the days of Cyrus the Persians were free men as well as lords of others, and their soldiers were free and equal, and the kings used and honored all the talent which they could find, and so the nation waxed great because there was freedom and friendship and communion of soul. But Cyrus, though a wise general, never troubled himself about the education of his family. He was a soldier from his youth upward and left his children, who were born in the purple, to be educated by women, who humored and spoiled them. A rare education, truly. Yes, such an education as princesses, who had recently grown rich, might be expected to give them, in a country where the men were solely occupied, with warlike pursuits, likely enough. Their father had possessions of men and animals and never considered that the race to whom he was about to make them over had been educated in a very different school, not like the Persian shepherd who was well able to take care of himself and his own. He did not see that his children had been brought up in the median fashion by women and eunuchs, The end was that one of the sons of Cyrus slew the other and lost the kingdom by his own folly. Observe again that Darius, who restored the kingdom, had not received a royal education. He was one of the seven chiefs, and when he came to the throne, he divided the empire into seven provinces, and he made equal laws and implanted friendship among the people. Hence his subjects were greatly attached to him, and cheerfully helped him to extend his empire. Next followed Xerxes, who had received the same royal education as Cambyses, and met with a similar fate. The reflection naturally occurs to us, how could Darius, with all his experience, have made such a mistake? the ruin of xerxes was not a mere accident but the evil life which is generally led by the sons of very rich and royal persons and this is what the legislator has seriously to consider justly may the lacedaemonians be praised for not giving special honour to birth or wealth for such advantages are not to be highly esteemed without virtue and not even virtue is to be esteemed unless it be accompanied by temperance explain no one would like to live in the same house with a courageous man who had no control over himself nor with a clever artist who was a rogue nor can justice and wisdom ever be separated from temperance but considering these qualities with reference to the honor and dishonor which is to be assigned to them in states, would you say, on the other hand, that temperance, if existing without the other virtues in the soul, is worth anything or nothing? I cannot tell. You have answered well. It would be absurd to speak of temperance as belonging to the class of honourable or of dishonourable qualities, because all other virtues in their various classes require temperance to be added to them. Having the addition, they are honoured not in proportion to that, but to their own excellence. And ought not the legislator to determine these classes? Certainly. Suppose, then, that without going into details we make three great classes of them, Most honourable are the goods of the soul, always assuming temperance as a condition of them. Secondly, those of the body. Thirdly, external possessions. The legislator who puts them in another order is doing an unholy and unpatriotic thing. These remarks were suggested by the history of the Persian kings, and to them I will now return. The ruin of their empire was caused by the loss of freedom and the growth of despotism. All community of feeling disappeared. Hatred and spoliation took the place of friendship. The people no longer fought heartily for their masters. The rulers, finding their myriads useless on the field of battle, resorted to mercenaries as their only salvation and were thus compelled by their circumstances to proclaim the stupidest of falsehoods that virtue is a trifle in comparison of money. But enough of the Persians. A different lesson is taught by the Athenians, whose example shows that a limited freedom is far better than an unlimited. Ancient Athens at the time of the Persian invasion had such a limited freedom. The people were divided into four classes according to the amount of their property and the universal love of order as well as the fear of the approaching host, made them obedient and willing citizens. For Darius had sent Datis and Artaphernes, commanding them under pain of death to subjugate the Eritreans and Athenians. A report, whether true or not, came to Athens that all the Eritreans had been netted, and the Athenians in terror, sent all over Hellas for assistance none came to their relief except the Lacedaemonians, and they arrived a day too late when the battle of Marathon had been already fought. In process of time Xerxes came to the throne, and the Athenians heard of nothing but the bridge over the Hellespont and the canal of Athos, and the innumerable host and fleet. They knew that these were intended to avenge the defeat of Marathon. Their case seemed desperate, for there was no Helene, likely to assist them by land, and at sea they were attacked by more than a thousand vessels. Their only hope, however slender, was in victory, so they relied upon themselves and upon the gods. Their common danger and the influence of their ancient constitution greatly tended to promote harmony among them. Reverence and fear, that fear which the coward never knows, made them fight for their altars and their homes, and save them from being dispersed all over the world. Your words, Athenian, are worthy of your country, and you, Megillus, who have inherited the virtues of your ancestors, are worthy to hear them. Let me ask you to take the moral of my tale. The Persians have lost their liberty in absolute slavery, and we in absolute freedom. In ancient times, the Athenian people were not the masters, but the servants of the laws. Of what laws? In the first place there were laws about music, and the music was of various kinds. There was one kind which consisted of hymns, another of lamentations. There was also the paean and the dithyram and the so-called laws, nomoi, or strains which were played upon the harp. The regulation of such matters was not left to the whistling and clapping of the crowd. There was silence while the judges decided, and the boys and the audience in general were kept in order by raps of a stick. But after a while there arose a new race of poets, men of genius certainly, however careless of musical truth and propriety, who made pleasure the only criterion of excellence, That was a test which the spectators could apply for themselves. The whole audience, instead of being mute, became vociferous, and a theatrocracy took the place of an aristocracy. Could the judges have been free, there would have been no great harm done. A musical democracy would have been well enough, but conceit has been our ruin. Everybody knows everything and is ready to say anything. The age of reverence is gone, and the age of irreverence and licentiousness has succeeded. Most true. And with this freedom comes disobedience to rulers, parents, elders. In the latter days to the law also, the end returns to the beginning, and the old titanic nature reappears. Men have no regard for the gods or for oaths, and the evils of the human race seem as if they would never cease. Whither are we running away? once more we must pull up the argument with bit and curb lest as the proverb says we shall fall off our ass good our purpose in what we have been saying is to prove that the legislator ought to aim at securing for a state three things freedom friendship wisdom and we chose two states, one was the type of freedom and the other of despotism, and we showed that when in a mean they attained their highest perfection. In a similar spirit we spoke of the Dorian expedition and of the settlement on the hills and in the plains of Troy, and of music and the use of wine and of all that preceded. And now, has our discussion been of any use? Yes, stranger, for by a singular coincidence the Cretans are about to send out a colony of which the settlement has been confided to the Kenosians. Ten commissioners, of whom I am one, are to give laws to the colonists, and we may give any which we please, Cretan or foreign. And therefore let us make a selection from what has been said, and then proceed with the construction of the state. Very good, I am quite at your service. And I too, says Megillus. Book 4 And now, what is this city? I do not want to know what is to be the name of the place, for some accident, a river or a local deity will determine that, but what the situation is, whether maritime or inland. The city will be about eleven miles from the sea. Are there harbors? Excellent. And is the surrounding country self-supporting? Almost. Any neighboring states? No, and that is the reason for choosing the place, which has been deserted from time immemorial. And is there a fair proportion of hill and plain and wood? Like Crete, in general, more hill than plain. Then there is some hope for your citizens. Had the city been on the sea, and dependent for support on other countries, no human power? could have preserved you from corruption even the distance of eleven miles is hardly enough for the sea although agreeable, is a dangerous companion and a highway of strange morals and manners as well as of commerce but as the country is only moderately fertile there will be no great export trade and no great returns of gold and silver which are the ruin of states is there timber for shipbuilding there is no pine nor much cypress and very little stone pine or plain wood for the interior of ships. That is good. Why? Because the city will not be able to imitate the bad ways of her enemies. What is the bearing of that remark? To explain my meaning, I would ask you to remember what we said about the Cretan laws, that they had an eye to war only, whereas I maintained that they ought to have included all virtue and i hope that you in your turn will retaliate upon me if i am false to my own principle for i consider that the lawgiver should go straight to the mark of virtue and justice and disregard wealth and every other good when separated from virtue what further i mean when i speak of the imitation of enemies i will illustrate by the story of minos if our cretan friend will allow me to mention it Minos, who was a great sea-king, imposed upon the Athenians a cruel tribute, for in those days they were not a maritime power, they had no timber for ship-building, and therefore they could not imitate their enemies, and better far, as I maintain, would it have been for them to have lost many times over the lives which they devoted to the tribute, than to have turned soldiers into sailors.' naval warfare is not a very praiseworthy art men should not be taught to leap on shore and then again to hurry back to their ships or to find specious excuses for throwing away their arms bad customs ought not to be gilded with fine words and retreat is always bad as we are taught in homer when he introduces odysseus setting forth to agamemnon the danger of ships being at hand when soldiers are disposed to fly An army of lions, trained in such ways, would fly before a herd of deer. Further, a city which owes its preservation to a crowd of pilots and oarsmen and other undeserving persons cannot bestow rewards of honor properly. And this is the ruin of states. Still in Crete we say that the Battle of Salamis was the salvation of Hellas. Such is the prevailing opinion. But I, Megillus, say that the Battle of Marathon began the deliverance and that the Battle of Plataea completed it for these battles made men better, whereas the battles of Salamis and Artemisium made them no better. And we further affirm that mere existence is not the great political good of individuals or states, but the continuance of the best existence. Certainly. Let us then endeavor to follow this principle in colonization and legislation. And first let me ask you who are to be the colonists. May any one come from any city of Crete? for you would surely not send a general invitation to all Hellas. Yet I observe that in Crete there are people who have come from Argos and Aegina, and other places. Our recruits will be drawn from all Crete, and of other Hellenes we should prefer Peloponnesians. As you observe, there are Argives among the Cretans. Moreover, the Gortinians, who are the best of all Cretans, have come from Gortus in Peloponnesus. Colonization in some ways easier when the colony goes out in a swarm from one country owing to the pressure of population or revolution or war. In this case there is the advantage that the new colonists have a community of race, language, and laws. But then, again, they are less obedient to the legislator, and often they are anxious to keep the very laws and customs which cause their ruin at home. A mixed multitude, on the other hand, is more tractable although there is a difficulty in making them pull together. There is nothing, however, which perfects men's virtue more than legislation and colonization, and yet I have a word to say which may seem to be depreciatory of legislators. What is that? I was going to make the saddening reflection that that accidents of all sorts are the true legislators, wars and pestilences and famines and the frequent recurrence of bad seasons— The observer will be inclined to say that almost all human things are chance, and this is certainly true about navigation and medicine and the art of the general. But there is another thing which may equally be said. What is it? That God governs all things, and that chance and opportunity cooperate with him. And according to yet a third view, art has part with them, for surely in a storm it is well to have a pilot. And the same is true of legislation, Even if circumstances are favorable, a skilful lawgiver is still necessary. Most true. All artists would pray for certain conditions under which to exercise their art, and would not the legislator do the same? Certainly. Come, legislator, let us say to him, and what are the conditions which you would have? He will answer, grant me a city which is ruled by a tyrant, and let the tyrant be young, mindful, teachable, courageous, magnanimous, and let him have the inseparable condition of all virtue, which is temperance, not prudence, but that natural temperance, which is the gift of children and animals, and is hardly reckoned among goods. With this he must be endowed, if the state is to acquire the form most conducive to happiness in the speediest manner. And I must add, one other condition. The tyrant must be fortunate, and his good fortune must consist in his having the cooperation of a great legislator. When God has done all this, he has done the best which he can for a state, not so well if he has given them two legislators instead of one, and less and less well if he has given them a great many. An orderly tyranny most easily passes into the perfect state, in the second degree a monarchy, in the third degree of democracy an oligarchy is worst of all i do not understand i suppose that you have never seen a city which is subject to a tyranny i have no desire to see one you would have seen what i am describing if you ever had the tyrant can speedily change the manners of a state and affix the stamp of praise or blame on any action which he pleases for the citizens readily follow the example which he sets there is no quicker way of making changes but there is a counterbalancing difficulty it is hard to find the divine love of temperance and justice existing in any powerful form of government whether in a monarchy or an oligarchy In olden days there were chiefs like Nestor, who was the most eloquent and temperate of mankind, but there is no one his equal now. If such an one ever arises among us, blessed will he be, and blessed they who listen to his words. For where power and wisdom and temperance meet in one, there are the best laws and constitutions." I am endeavoring to show you how easy under the conditions supposed and how difficult under any other is the task of giving a city good laws. How do you mean? Let us old men attempt to mold in words a constitution for your new state as children make figures out of wax. Proceed. What constitution shall we give, democracy, oligarchy, or aristocracy?' To which of these classes, Megillus, do you refer your own state? The Spartan constitution seems to me to contain all these elements. Our state is a democracy and also an aristocracy. The power of the ephors is tyrannical and we have an ancient monarchy. Much the same, adds Cleinias, may be said of Kenosis. The reason is that you have politics, but other states are mere aggregations of men dwelling together, which are named after their several ruling powers, whereas a state, if an anocracy at all, should be called a theocracy. A tale of old will explain my meaning. There is a tradition of a golden age in which all things were spontaneous and abundant. Cronos, then lord of the world, knew that no mortal nature could endure the temptations of power and therefore he appointed demons or demigods who are of a superior race to have dominion over man as man has dominion over the animals they took care of us with great ease and pleasure to themselves and no less to us and the tradition says that only when god and not man is the ruler can the human race cease from ill this was the manner of life which prevailed under Cronos, and which we must strive to follow so far as the principle of immortality still abides in us, and we live according to law and the dictates of right reason. But in an oligarchy or democracy, when the governing principle is a thirst for pleasure, the laws are trampled underfoot, and there is no possibility of salvation. Is it not often said that there are as many forms of laws as there are governments, and that they have no concern either with any one virtue or with all virtue, but are relative to the will of the government? Which is as much as to say that might makes right. What do you mean? I mean that governments enact their own laws, and that every government makes self-preservation its principal aim. He who transgresses the laws is regarded as an evil doer and punished accordingly. This was one of the unjust principles of government, which we mentioned when speaking of the different claims to rule. We were agreed that parents should rule their children, the elder the younger, the noble the ignoble, but there were also several other principles, and among them Pindar's law of violence, to whom then is our state to be entrusted, for many a government is only a victorious faction which has a monopoly of power and refuses any share to the conquered, lest when they get into office they should remember their wrongs. Such governments are not politics but parties, nor are any laws good which are made in the interest of particular classes only, and not of the whole. And in our state I mean to protest against making any man a ruler because he is rich or strong or noble." But those who are obedient to the laws and who win the victory of obedience shall be promoted to the service of the gods according to the degree of their obedience. When I call the ruler, the servant, or minister of the law, this is not a mere paradox, but I mean to say that upon a willingness to obey the law, the existence of the state depends. Truly, stranger, you have a keen vision. Why, yes, every man, when he is old, has his intellectual vision most keen. And now shall we call in our colonists and make a speech to them. Friends, we say to them, God holds in his hand the beginning, middle, and end of all things, and he moves in a straight line towards the accomplishment of his will. Justice always bears him company and punishes those who fall short of his laws. He who would be happy follows humbly in her train, but he who is lifted up with pride or wealth or honor or beauty is soon deserted by god and being deserted he lives in confusion and disorder to many he seems a great man but in a short time he comes to utter destruction wherefore seeing these things what ought we to do or think every man ought to follow god what life then is pleasing to god There is an old saying that like agrees with like, measure with measure, and God ought to be our measure in all things. The temperate man is the friend of God because he is like him, and the intemperate man is not his friend because he is not like him. And the conclusion is that the best of all things for a good man is to pray and sacrifice to the gods, but the bad man has a polluted soul and therefore his service is wasted upon the gods, while the good are accepted of them. I have told you the mark at which we ought to aim, you will say how, and with what weapons. In the first place, we affirm that after the Olympian gods and the gods of the state, honor should be given to the gods below, and to them should be offered everything in even numbers and of the second choice. The auspicious odd numbers and everything of the first choice are reserved for the gods above." next demigods or spirits must be honored and then heroes and after them family gods who will be worshipped at their local seats according to law further the honour due to parents should not be forgotten children owe all that they have to them and the debt must be repaid by kindness and attention in old age no unbecoming word must be uttered before them for there is an avenging angel who hears them when they are angry and the child should consider that the parent when he has been wronged has a right to be angry After their death, let them have a moderate funeral, such as their fathers have had before them, and there shall be an annual commemoration of them. Living on this wise, we shall be accepted of the gods, and shall pass our days in good hope. The law will determine all our various duties towards relatives and friends and other citizens, and the whole state will be happy and prosperous. But if the legislator would persuade as well as command, he will add prefaces to his laws which will predispose the citizens to virtue. Even a little accomplished in the way of gaining the hearts of men is of great value, for most men are in no particular haste to become good. As Hesiod says, long and steep is the first half of the way to virtue, but when you have reached the top, the rest is easy. End of the preamble part two.